Welcome to Scandal.K12.us. Our Scandal K-12 curriculum is a true crime comedy podcast about bamboozling boards, sneaky superintendents, lame learning products, and teachers who are way too cool for school. This curriculum may contain references and potential descriptions of crimes against minors and the field of education. Listener discretion is always advised. And now, time for the morning announcements. Good morning, Scandal K-12 students, home of the Fighting Rats. Go Rats! Now let's stand for the state anthem of Virginia, headquarters to the subject of our main announcement. You ought to carry, carry me back. Yeah. Well, enough of that. Thanks, Scandal K-12 Glee Club. You really outdid yourself there. See you at the chess club that sprang up after y'all watched Queen's Gambit, but will vanish after the remake of Dune is released. We want to recognize that teachers need to relax, and what better way to relax than lighting up a fat bale? It appears that Kevin Pope, a science teacher at the John V. Lindsay Wildcat Academy in Hunts Point, didn't want to just light a spliff, dab some keef, smoke a fat one, pass the doochie to the left-hand side, roll a doobie, or suck on a joint. Kevin Pope allegedly wanted to buy a pound of weed. Pope was fairly new to the academy, a privately run, publicly funded charter school for older students who have dropped out of traditional schools or who have criminal histories. Because of the sort of students that the Wildcat Academy enrolls, the school is known for having a very difficult work environment for teachers who, according to Glassdoor, suffer constant harassment and verbal abuse from a hardened student population who've been in court or court-involved or even served serious time in lockup. While many may see... Criminal students with little hope of redemption or education, Pope saw students with so much potential to connect him with the underworld of drugs and go all Breaking Bad for a semester. It appears that in New York City, a $70,000 a year teacher salary is basically translated to making about $26,000 a year when you take into account the high cost of living. To mitigate this lack of buying power, it seems that Pope hoped to purchase a pound of cannabis wholesale and then sell it directly to the consumer market. According to Black Entertainment Television, a media company owned by Viacom CBS, Domestic Media Network's unit of Viacom CBS, Pope asked several of his students if they could connect him with a drug dealer. Pope then was introduced to a teen who claimed to have a Manhattan dealer who could get large quantities of weed. In order to facilitate this transaction, Pope gave the unnamed minor $4,000 in cash. Unfortunately, the deal went bad. I mean, how can a 16-year-old kid screw up a deal? But he did. However, rather than providing the teacher a full refund, the student made off with that fat knot of blue bands and Pope turned into the grudge. Students at the charter school were stunned that the teacher, described as a cool guy, had been arrested. He was a straight-up teacher, said one student, who wished not to give his name. He'd make you uh, understand the lessons. I never knew him to be shady. Although he was not slim shady, he appears to have been shady. After wandering the streets looking for the student in his version of the grudge, Pope finally let upon him on Lafayette Avenue. According to the story in BET, Pope not only threatened the student with words, threatened his student's mother with more words, he beat the living stuffing out of him, stole the kid's iPhone 6, and, in the most 80s New York City callback, snatched his chain. According to the complaint against the teacher, Pope gave the students such a beatdown that they had to staple his head back together, which is certainly a stomping. According to Pope's lawyer, the student actually stole a briefcase of money that Pope had, and Pope fought back. 
The allegations of weed purchase were untrue, and the cash was for a legal transaction. Prior to joining the Wildcat Academy, Mr. Pope had been a teacher for Future Leaders Institute Charter School for many years and also ran two successful Donors Choose fundraisers to bring science resources to the underserved students he taught. While he pleaded guilty to disorderly conduct, he continues to deny the student's version of the story. While most parents work extra hours to shepherd their children through online lessons and endless Zoom classes of, or glitchy Microsoft Teams, many claim that students are having difficulty showing up for class when that class is a Chromebook sitting in the living room next to the Xbox. According to ABC7.com, New York's source for breaking news, weather, and live video covering New York City, New Jersey, Long Island, and all of the greater New York City area, a Northern California parent claims they received a letter. Wait. You heard me correct. A letter. What is this, 1986? Anyway, the parent received a letter threatening the middle school student with arrest for missing less than two hours of a Zoom class. According to ABC7.com, the school's principal told KGO-TV that her administration had no choice but to send the letter to the parent. I guess the fax machine was broken, the carrier pigeon dead, and no one had flags for the semivore anymore. The administrator claimed that she was forced to threaten children by mail under a new state set of guidelines around keeping better track of attendance as California public schools continue with their mostly virtual learning. We'll find out later why California is so sensitive when it comes to attendance for virtual learning. Mark Mastroff, who lives in the Bay Area of Lafayette, which seems strange for ABC.com to make mention of the city until we realize that homes in that neighborhood go for $1.2 million, and it's a tell for those who know that he's one of those parents. According to Mastroff, Chauncey is a fourth child going through this middle school, and out of the blue, our butler fetched a letter out of our Rove Concepts letterbox and told us a tea. Explained the parent, his monocle dropping down from his eye, suspended to his waistcoat by a thin silver chain as the golden twilight of the San Francisco Valley lit the drawing room, dappling the leather wallpaper. But this doesn't seem to be an isolated incident with Mark and his fourth middle school-aged child. A quick search of the internet abounds with stories of children being threatened with arrest by teachers and administrators. According to informedamerica.com, teachers and administrators have gone mad with power, calling the police on parents and sending the Department of Children and Family Services. The article alleges that the experience can go quickly from routine and annoying to crazy and criminal because DCF is the group that can take your kids away and place them in foster care. This threat to home sovereignty inspired one reader of Informed America to respond to the story that this is just yet another example of the liberal manipulative process they are creating. This whole SIP is a bunch of BS and no solutions are ever offered, only threats, criminal conviction of honest Americans, and the insatiable lust for control by the Democrats. Another case was broken by Newsbreak.com titled, When Teachers Call the Cops on Parents Whose Kids Skip Their Zoom Classes. However, to read on the full story, one must click on a button that immediately sends you to a slash dot page that looks pretty much like an entry from a user who is commenting and not what we would call a real news story. Perhaps many of these online statements of teachers arresting students are unsubstantiated or what the laity call fake news. Along with fake news, we've seen a lot of other online fake information. 
school reviews, parent satisfaction reports, student performance data, graduation rates, and other survey results that can be misleading or created out of whole cloth since collecting such information online, anonymously retaining it in digital formats that keep changing, and storing them in private servers can lead to a lot of confusion and downright manipulation. It appears that there is, indeed, a lot of fake online. This fake can be used for political ends or in the corporate world for financial reasons, such as, say, to make a billion dollars a year using blurred lines, fuzzy math, and downright fraud. We will look at one set of online schools and the multi-million dollar management company behind it in an episode we're calling scandal.k12.us forward slash panic at the charter school. Also, this will be scandal.k12.us's first two-parter since we just can't fit this much yummy deliciousness into a single announcement. Today we're going to look at a certain company that runs as an Educational Management Organization, or EMO, or EMO. EMOs are for-profit companies that then manage charter schools. This is different from charter management organizations, or CMOs, or CUMOs, which are nonprofit managers of charter schools. While CUMOs and EMOs as terms are often used interchangeably by the press, as well as by the companies or organizations themselves, we're looking at one EMO, which is similar to the companies Academia, Panasophic Learning, Connections Academy, and K-12. These emo companies are not necessarily emotional, sensitive, shy, introverted, or wallow in angst and depression, but they do practice a certain amount of misanthropy, which makes them totally emo since, to quote, the emo accepts the full amount of state subsidy per student. If it can operate at a lower cost, the difference is profit for the emo. Our emo rock star we are taking to the stage and examining is K-12 Incorporated. K-12 Incorporated is not to be confused with K-12 Learning Pearson, now having been spun off from Pearson and then having its name changed to Savas. Savas Learning, which is a strange name for an educational company since Savas, as a name, may be Aramaic for old man, Serbian for slave boy, or Russian meaning old drunk man. Adding to the confusion of emos and kumus is that in 2020, according to the company press release, K-12 Incorporated will officially become Stride, a name that recognizes that, as a company, we are no longer limited by the boundaries of the K-12 market. In this and the next episode, we're going to use the name K-12, since higher education is outside of our own scandal.k12.us brand, which is exclusively limited by the boundaries of the K-12 market. Whatever its new name, K-12, means profit. K-12 is a billion-dollar company that offers a number of educational services beyond being just emo. K-12 was founded in 1999 as a brain idea and in 2000 on paper as the company and the founders timed the $40 million investment by various scions of the financial industry to take advantage of the $32 billion spending tsunami of private-public partnership funding that was to hit the shores as part of the 2001 No Child Left Behind Act, or Nickleby. As you may remember from previous episodes and from angry teacher blogs, the 2001 Nickleby legislation required states to perform standardized testing in math and English, as well as a more stronger emphasis on funding for school choice or school reform, 
both of which fueled the charter school movement. K-12 Incorporated, or we'll call it K-12, was founded by a number of people with second, third, and fourth homes, such as Goldman Sachs executive Ron Packard, former United States Secretary of Education and right-wing talk show host William Bennett, and one Michael Milken, known on his Wikipedia page as a, quote, convicted felon, financier, and philanthropist. To this dream team of financiers and convicted felons, upper leadership was, and continues to be, a cast of characters from the upper echelons of educational publishing, telecommunications, and various Teach for America or Teach for America adjacent. I spent one year in the classroom and now I'm an administrator, but I always call myself a former teacher sort of people. So to review, we're going to take a look at K-12's key emo activities. These include managed public schools, full-time virtual public charter schools, and blended schools, which combine online time with classroom time, instructional business, which involves formation and sales of educational curricula, and international and private pay business, including managed private schools and independent course sales overseas. Now, the institutional curriculum business has a wide audience. To the homeschool community, K-12 sells an online Common Core-compliant curriculum to parent educators who eschew the dogmatic confines of religious education but are not ready for the free-for-all hippie drum circle that is unschooling. Concerned Mom, a poster on homeschool-curriculum.org, claimed that K-12 is, and here we go into all-caps territory, Not homeschooling. Please stop calling it homeschooling. True homeschoolers and their parents who are choosing to keep their own curriculum and not following the government standards, many homeschool to keep the government out of education! Exclamation point! Exclamation point! Exclamation point! Exclamation point! <clears throat> to the public school community, a version of this online curriculum is also sold to schools and districts where traditional schools use their own technology to deliver K-12 provided content. When schools went remote in 2020 during the pandemic, K-12 online offerings seem to have driven up the stock price of K-12 to a 20-year high, at least before bottoming out later in the year, when certain realities caught up with K-12. We'll get into the online curriculum of K-12 in part two of the episode, and we'll be ignoring the international sales as well as the private school management for the time being. No company gets almost a billion dollars a year in revenue by being simple. So now we're going to focus on the management of public schools by K-12. By managed public schools, here we mean charter schools, but these schools can take many forms and each type may exist in only a number of states. K-12 is the emo for virtual academies, which as the name implies uses the online K-12 curriculum delivered by K-12 teachers and follows state standards but allows students to legally do so from home. Remember, while students can be in the den, the rumpus room, or family room struggling with their math problems or learning about Edgar Allan Poe in the bathroom, this should not be confused with homeschooling since, again to quote Concerned Mom, all caps please, K-12 is not homeschooling. K-12 schools also emo for a type of school called inside schools. Inside schools, according to the literature, specialize in helping students overcome certain learning challenges using a blended school approach that combines classroom attendance with online learning. Inside schools are found in Pennsylvania, California, Michigan, and the District of Columbia, but also exist in Kansas, Colorado, and Nevada, depending on what years you're talking about, since not every great private-public relationship is a lasting one. K-12 also offers another option for students. 
For those students who want a jump on college and career in high school, but are unable to get out of their pajamas and into Bard High School Early College Manhattan or any Bard Early College K-12 Emos Destination Career Academies. Destination Career Academies emphasize college and career preparation, but uses online teaching and career activities so students can learn from an early age to just phone it in. These K-12 school programs were explained in a graduate research paper we found on the Foundations in Education Studies website, written as a group project by Sydney, Emily, Jacqueline, and Billy. And we really hope Billy carried his weight since we just quoted a lot of information from their paper, including someone in the list of authors on the group project with and. And and usually means that particular author didn't contribute anything to the group project until the last minute. And it turns out that Sydney had to do extra work because, you know, Billy didn't take this whole thing seriously. So we're going to focus on virtual academies. These academies operate in a number of states, and while virtual, they're assigned locations since each student who enrolls in this, quote-unquote, public option will be paid for by public monies from the district they reside in, and depending on the state, this particular school may include other districts. It's going to get complicated. We're going to examine this house of cards. We're going to look at K-12 emoing in California, just to keep it focused. In 2020, California currently has nine virtual academies. The number has changed since they first started operations in the state in 2020, since, as you know, stuff happens. Each virtual academy represents a large district such as Los Angeles, Maricopa, San Diego, Fresno, and others, but each of these quote-unquote locations can take and enroll students from adjacent counties. While branded as locations, it turns out that this is more of a legal fiction. Let's just say that according to Jessica Calafetti of the Mercury News, formerly the San Jose Mercury News, and known by the locals as the Merc, the Mercster, or Mercurino, California children who live almost anywhere south of Humboldt County, which is just about the border with Washington State, can sign up for one of K-12 schools. And while there are about 6 million public school students in California, in 2016 the academies enrolled approximately 15,000 of these students, representing a significant income for K-12. Now, as we said, K-12 is a profit company and cannot directly run a public charter school since in California and most states, all public charter schools are nonprofits. To be a nonprofit charter school typically means having an independent board of directors who oversee activities and often have a sponsoring agency. In the case of the virtual academies, the sponsor would be a small school or a district and the sponsor's governing body would serve de jour as the governing body of the virtual academy. In California, once the paperwork is in order with the state and the charter is set up, um, there's no direct oversight by the State Department of Education since it's assumed that the sponsor will provide that oversight. However, in this case, the sponsors don't seem to be looking at anything other than the check that sponsor received for helping out the charter school, but we'll get into that. I guess to frame this next bit, we're going to have to quote the Roman poet Junival from his satires, Qui custodiet ipsos custodies or who can watch the watchmen, or in plain English, if you give me 10 bucks, I saw nothing. According to the Mercury News, the San Mateo Virtual Academy had a de jour sponsor of the Jefferson Elementary School District. Jefferson Elementary is a district of about 6,000 students. However, San Mateo Virtual Academy had a catchment 
that is, the counties the school could theoretically recruit students from, of over 200,000 students. Well, there's a lot of failing students who need online education in them thar hills. In 2016, District Superintendent Bernie Vidalis, when pressed by the Mercury News, conceded he knew very little about the online school for which he's responsible. Vidalis said he wasn't sure how many kids were enrolled in the academy, where they lived, or even how well they had done on the last round of state tests, even though the, and we're quoting the Mercury News here, the California Charter Schools Association insists state law requires authorizers, that is the sponsors, to monitor student performance closely. When pressed further, Superintendent Vidalis claimed responsibility was with the state. Well, the biggest action we could take would be raising a red flag, Vidalis said. Like, who communicates with flags anymore? Anyway, Wendy Chan, director of the California Department of Education's Charter School Division, does not communicate with flags. When it comes to, like, totally charter schools, state law provides the State Department of Education Charter School Division with, like, totally very limited role, Chen said in perhaps the most professional version of, I'm rubber, you're glue, whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. This virtual game of charter school cookie cookie is not surprising since K-12, <coughs> uh, we mean... San Mateo Virtual Academy paid Jefferson Elementary 100000 a year in oversight fees. By the time those meddling kids from the Merck came creeping about in 2016, Jefferson Elementary District had banked a million dollars in school funding for not sending up red flags. Other California locations, such as Los Angeles Academy, made sure their sponsors were taken care of. A million dollars a year was paid by the L.A. Academy, but not to the L.I. Unified School District, but to a district called West Covina Unified School District, a district of about 14,000 students just outside of L.A., where the district office is in walking distance, and this is real, of Hustler Hollywood Adult Gifts and Entertainment and Goodfellas Pawn Shop that sells guns, more guns, and that lawnmower that was stolen off your lawn in 2006. So let's stop, take a deep breath, or drink your favorite adult beverage to the bottom, and think about where we are. Let's look at the red twine and see what's being connected. Let's see the dots, the blurry images of Maricopa business parks where there may or may not be a non-profit hiding, a faded dinner receipt from San Mateo, and maybe what does that tell us? Let's just see where we stand. So if we understand this correctly, K-12 may or may not have inspired, wink, wink, the founding of public charter schools. These charter schools are online, so they don't have to offer any classrooms or supplies or basically anything, but they do require sponsorship to be a legal reality in California. This sponsorship can be just about any school or district in whatever area makes sense, like Bamfamet Regional High School District or whatever. Once approved as a charter by the state, the state no longer is monitoring activities since the job of this is sent off to the sponsor to make sure that the charter school is delivering on their promises. This charter school then enters a contractual relationship with K-12 for all activities, uh, providing teachers, uh, lessons, tracking attendance, administration, and of course, taking the check from the state. Key staff for the charters work directly for K-12 as do many teachers such as the tutors and the like and some of them are actually independent contractors, so it's very complicated. But 
basically each student who attends a charter is funded by the state as if they were going to a local brick-and-mortar public school and about the same cost. This money is paid directly to K-12, who, as the EMO, then uses these funds to run the academy. This means they pay the school leadership, the teachers, and the sponsor. Between what the state pays, K-12, and what it costs to run each virtual academy, there are savings, and these savings are passed on to the K-12 shareholders as profit. Now, in all those years that it was chugging along, there were a lot of winners in that layer cake of offal. The K-12 leadership wins since their formula can be applied to many states and therefore can ensure large salaries for themselves. Shareholders win since their investment in education can land them great dividends. Now, the state wins since it can be seen as supporting local school choice and innovation by approving these virtual charter schools. The public schools the virtual academies operated in actually win since while they're losing funding per student, to the virtual academy, they're often losing their most costly students, those who may not graduate, those who need additional services, those who may cause disruptions in class or the hallways, thus lowering the overall school success rate and dinging them for funding under Nickleby. So we're going to explore all of that after a very short break. The second half of tonight's reading will resume after the intermission. And welcome back. From 2002 to 2008, life seemed to be good for K-12, even if individual state virtual academies maybe hit a snag here or there. In 2008, California passed a law that all public schools, even those charters online, required certified teachers. However, groups of strangely well-organized homeschoolers fought back and the law was dropped. Since K-12 did have an IPO in 2008, a lot of things had to be made public, such as the compensation for the top leadership. However, life seemed to be quiet until 2010, when the virtual academies started to get a little bit of rumbling. So, in 2010, the longer impact of No Child Left Behind, or Nickleby, was being looked upon with a little more scorn, and all those early aughts edtech bro companies trying to reform education with online peasant dazzlers now had years of hard data on which to hang themselves from. Also in 2010, the Obama administration came out with the Race to the Top, or RTT, or RT3 legislation, and a new funding tsunami was unleashed, yet the tsunami was going in a slightly different direction. While they still had a priority of demonstrated success in raising student achievement, which sounds a lot like Nickleby's strong accountability for results, it seemed that there was a little less sheepishness in the willingness to question online educational outfits and their bold and often unsubstantiated claims. According to the School Superintendents Association, or ASA, there were potholes in the road to virtual schooling. In the 2010 article on the topic, Jean Glass, professor of the Mary Lou Fulton Institute of Graduate School of Education at Arizona State University, home of Phi Kappa Alpha, Alpha Chi Omega, Omega Chi, and Chi Phi, claimed, Out there is a town in the prairie east of the Colorado foothills that showed a local population of 77 persons among 24 families in the 2000 census. It was somewhat shocking then when in 2005, that school district in the town reported an enrollment of more than 1,000 students to the Colorado Department of Education and had collected more than 
$15 million in state money since it opened in 2001. Even more surprising is the fact that the Colorado Virtual Academy, run by K-12, as they did in California, is only the second largest online school in the state. In 2012, editor discussion on the Wikipedia page on California virtual academies that were branded Kava, so we're going to say Kava from here on, showed continued confusion about the actual nature of the relationship between Kava and K-12. One online Wikipedia editor, whose account strangely appears to have been created just to edit and comment on the Kava page, claimed, K-12 is a private company that provides the material and access to the online school to Kava. Kava and K-12 are partnered, not sister or parent-child companies. Just as the public schools buy educational materials from various publishing companies, Kava uses K-12 for their needs. To which Mark Cooper, Wikipedian for 14 years, 11 months, and 5 days, as of this publication, who on his bio claims to love Aikido, having done judo for 30 years before moving over to that anyway, he responded, There is no evidence that Kava was ever independent of K-12. On May 24, 2002, K-12 announced the formation of Kava. There is no evidence of partnering, but rather that K-12 has set up the Kava program and controls it. Wow, thanks Mark for reading the SEC filings so we don't have to. Speaking of SEC filings, while the top of the cake, the CEO, was being paid quite well in 2004, according to Arc Times, an alternative newspaper based on what little is not a parking lot in Little Rock, K-12 had yet to turn a profit and, to quote them, has actually had to eat significant losses in California after it started several charter schools without waiting to get the necessary approval from local school boards. Anyway, several schools closed mid-year, although their students were able to shift to other K-12 virtual charter schools in the state. Charter schools closing mid-year, leaving students out in the virtual rain? Sounds familiar. If it doesn't, listen to our episode on Florida Man, in 2012, some of you may remember that the world was supposed to end. Well, unfortunately or fortunately, whatever you think of it, the world didn't end. But for K-12, things started to get a little difficult. It seems that the Arkansas teacher retirement system was unironically invested in K-12 as part of its portfolio. According to the lawsuit by the Arkansas teacher retirement system, and we're quoting from a primary document, the retirement system claims that K-12 did not report how they make money. Oh my, Daisy May Yoakum, heavens to Betsy, I don't know that that wicked K-12 made money on churn, signing up new students when others dropped out, or that half the students at some K-12 schools did not return the following year, get my smelling salts. That old K-12 listed students as inactive rather than sending them back to their home district, that allowed K-12 virtual schools to continue collecting that student's funding. And I was told by Sadie Hawkins that she saw some teachers having as many as 400 students. You can read more about this in David Hophog's versus K-12 Incorporated, Ronald J. Packard 2012, or perhaps we can get old Mark Cooper to read it for us and digest it into a Wikipedia article. Many documents in that lawsuit were emails between company officials and Seminole County teachers in Florida, since it appears that K-12 virtual academies, quote, 
used uncertified teachers for some of the online classes in Seminole County, and if the company asked certified teachers, they would sign rosters of students which they did not teach. Now, we know Mark over at Wikipedia is busy, so we actually read the documents ourselves, and what stands out is the claim that, quote, since K-12 uses the same teachers across the state in virtual instruction programs, this issue may reach far beyond the borders of Seminole County. And reach across the borders it did in no time, Duval County, home of Jacksonville, home of the Bearded Pig on 1224 Kings Avenue, home of the pulled pork so good make you want to slap your mama, well, they filed a lawsuit to halt the application and launched a virtual academy in that particular city, according to the website State Impact, a sort of sexy rebranding of boring NPR content. Quote, some districts have been critical of the applications, noting that they fail to provide basic budget details, rely on unrealistic en enrollment projections, and use outdated curriculum that does not match new common core standards that are taking effect. Wow. It must be bad for Florida to be pushing back on charter schools. Actually, in 2014, Safanad Limited, an overseas investment firm headed by Kamal Bahaman, with ties to Adel Ghazawi and a lot of Saudi money resting in Dubai, bought K-12 and Ronald Packard not only cashed in his K-12 stock, but also moved over to found Phanasophic Learning, a for-profit charter EMO with Bahaman and company, and according to the Wikipedia entry created by Strassen the House, who claims to legitimately have an alternative Wikipedia account under the name Strass Out of the House, quote, a 2015 acquisition made Panasophic the largest charter school operator in Ohio, with 12 schools and over 3,000 students took over the role from White Hat Management that previously managed vendor-operated school contracts. White Hat Management? A long, long time ago, as all you folks should know, Uncle Noah an ark. If you don't think this company is for real, you can learn more about White Hat Management over at cashinginonkids.org, a website you just don't want your management company to be advertised on. That's www.cashinginonkids.org, which we don't recommend you look at, but we also don't not recommend you look at it. The loss of Packard in 2014 was followed by the loss of William Bennett in 2015 after he said in some media source, If you want to reduce crime, you could abort every black baby in the country and your crime rate would go down. That would be impossible, ridiculous, and morally reprehensible thing to do, but your crime rate would go down. And due to these remarks at Philadelphia, Board of Education threatened to terminate a $3 million contract with K-12. So, of course, um, poor Mr. Bennett had to drop back. Sending up to replace Packard is Nate Davis. He was interim CEO until 2016 when Stuart Udell, former chief executive of Catapult Learning and former chief executive of Penn Foster, also former executive of Princeton Review and Kaplan, well, he showed that he knew how to take learning and make money from it. However, he did enter at a very difficult time for K-12. When Udell took the helm, he moved ahead with highly impactful K-12 activities and expanded the marketing, uh, but he also expanded the number of times that they were appearing in court. 
So not only had Kara, Rebecca, Heather, and all similarly situated K-12 teachers taken the company to task on for unpaid travel on, or material reimbursements that were not met as part of a class action lawsuit, Camilla Harris, who you might know today, was then the California Attorney General, and she had created a brand new Bureau of Children's Justice and wanted to just take it out for a test drive. So she rammed it right into K-12. Now, not to be outdone by this political grandstanding, Betty Yee, 2014 and current California State Controller, audited the Kava schools, quote, in the wake of news and media reports of questionable attendance records, poor academic performance, and of its 14,000 students on evidence of conflict of interest regarding the nonprofit school's connections to a sole source supplier and operator, K-12, according to edsource.org. In that same article, Mike Kraft, Vice President of Finance and Communications for K-12, responded, Well, there have been an enormous amount of misrepresentations made about the California Virtual Academy, Kava schools as a result of unfair and biased reporting, and by the agenda of some Sacramento special interests. Indeed, Sacramento special interests were taking out their knives and about to come for K-12 since data coming in from not just Kava schools, but other virtual academies were not looking good. The Mercury News investigation found that while the law required an, quote, arm's length distance between charitable organizations' boards and leadership, such as Kava, and entities they contract with, such as K-12, the name trustees of the Kava in San Mateo, who routinely approved all motions at meetings, also happened to be K-12 employees. By the end of 2016, the Bureau of Children's Justice and the False Claims Unit of the California Department of Justice under Harris had reached a $168.5 million settlement, which sounds like a lot. However, most of that would be givebacks in, quote, debt relief to the nonprofit schools it manages, balanced budget credits that were accrued by the schools as a result of the fee structure K-12 used in its contracts. That itself is a murky set of words, all arranged to look like English, but it explains that basically many schools fell behind in their enrollment targets, a.k.a. revenue targets. So an example would be that perhaps K-12 would set a target of $2 million for services, expecting revenue to meet that or over that. That would be considered the payment. However, when the school failed to meet this, perhaps overly optimistic enrollment slash revenue target, the debt was carried over to the next year as an amount owed. K-12 was able to report inflated revenue based on these expectations since these debts were just unrealized income. And over time, the sites were increasingly beholden to more and more of this debt. However, a good accountant, or perhaps an entire team of K-12 accountants, knew that these debts could be written off over the coming years, allowing for inflated profit reports up front, as well as write-offs in the event that they needed them on the back end. Not that corporations pay taxes, but let's pretend. So it turns out that this 160 so million dollars of this judgment was forbearance of already fictitious debts that Kava owed the K-12 corporation from 2005 to 2016. We can think of that as $14 million a year of debt, which perhaps was already written off by the company. 
If you'd like to examine the ruling for yourself, you can find this on page 17, paragraph 9, lines 16 to 22 of case BC 626392, California v. K-12. Now in the judgment, you could see that there were many wins. There were many corporate thou shalt nots. You know, don't lie about enrollment, provide access to quality materials, maybe give families $20 a month for internet access rather than having them pay for it themselves, maybe reimburse your teachers. Perhaps the largest one was that CAVA boards shall adopt a, quote, conflict of interest policy, parentheticals, quotes, policy that bars any K-12 directors, officers, and employees or any of their family members from being a board member, agent, or employee of any CAVA school. K-12 also had to pay out $6 million in actual cold hard cash, making the check out to Kamala Harris, Attorney General of California, in order to defray the cost of the court action. This left an additional $2.5 million for, well, things not outlined in the judgment. The important thing is that justice was served. Debts were forgiven. A check was written out to the Attorney General's office. Uh, little details were made like, thou shalt not lie in the judgment. And, um, well, basically, they were held accountable. Well, not really, because in the ruling, it was found that they were not showing moral turpitude and were not disqualified from future eligibility to receive federal or state funds, quote, in any way. Now, bonus points, K-12 did not have to admit liability of any of the allegations nor concession that claims were even well-founded. In other words, a little bad debt written off, $6 million to pay the bureaucrats, 2.5 vanishes in the thin air, and back to business as usual. For a company that, according to the Los Angeles Times, reported revenue of $651.4 million for just a nine-month period ending in March 2016 from operations in 37 states, the California ruling is just the cost of doing business, baby, and making profit in a large and storied nation. In 2017, the American Federation of Teachers, under President Randy Weingarten, seems to have finally woken up to the situation with K-12 having slept at the switch for some time, but they made up for that by issuing a scathing report titled, A Virtual Failure, colon, K-12 Incorporated Puts Cash Over Kids. The report heaped scorn, a lot of which we've already covered in this episode, but it also called out corporate leadership for lavish bonuses for executives, including one alleged financial package so egregious that shareholders were recommended to vote against it by the financial firm that represented them. The report also alleged that teachers at K-12 made about $28,000 annually and are expected to manage more than 250 students at a time, at least according to what the American Federation of Teachers found on Glassdoor. Wait, the American Federation of Teachers report cited Glassdoor? Randy Weingarten, if you are listening, using anonymous or unsubstantiated sources online to drive a narrative on educational scandals, well, that's our wheelhouse. So, girl, stay in your lane. The report also alleged that K-12 was, quote, too cozy with Betsy DeVos, the fleeting U.S. Secretary of Education, and ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, the handsome lobbying arm of corporate America. Now, nothing says cozy snuggle bunnies like pushing up against the warm Betsy DeVos and then cuddle puddle of ALEC lobbyists, and it seems that, well, 
DeVos was so invested in education of children, she was actually an investor of K-12. And, well, honestly, so wasn't the Arkansas Teacher Retirement Fund, but, well, they didn't know what K-12 was doing to make all that dirty, dirty money. According to the report, when DeVos was being confirmed, she used data in her hearings she had lifted directly from K-12 literature regarding their graduation rates, quote, data that was shown to be misleading, according to the report. As to K-12's cozying up against the cold, dead, collective flesh of Alec, it is well known and has been since the Mr. Smith Goes to Washington days that corporations especially those who need the sweet, sweet taxpayer money to support their small government private interest values, know how to cozy up to everyone. It's just how late capitalism works. Early in 2018, CEO Stuart Udell resigned from K-12 leadership due to, quote, the company's board had sought from Udell a, other quote, narrowing of his responsibilities, close quote, that would have been a departure from the, quote, original scope of his work, close quote, I don't know where we're going with this. Anyway, that's according to Ed Week's Market in Brief. Now, we're not sure what that quote-unquote narrowing of responsibilities was. Did that mean reducing his almost $5 million total compensation package? But, I'm sorry, don't feel sorry for him. He is currently CEO of Achieve 3000, an online literacy and reading tool where he's compensated, well, an undisclosed amount since Achieve 3000 and their current owner, private equity firm Inside Venture Partners, are not publicly traded and therefore do not need to disclose that kind of information to the SEC or to shareholders or to the general public. Now, K-12 wasn't left adrift. Assuming responsibilities for the tippy-tippy top job in 2018 was Nathaniel Davis or Nat Davis. He had been CEO for interim before, so now he's back in the chair again. Davis came in strong because 2019 was the first time the company reported a revenue of $1 billion, which he attributed to growth, quote, based on the managed public school programs, according to Marketplace K-12's Michelle Molinar. This was, it turns out, in the looming face of trouble because a lot of schools in Georgia were disputing things, and that was, according to the same article, quote, a sobering note to an otherwise upbeat report. Then, as we know far too well, none of us could hold on to 2019 forever as much as we wanted to, and before we knew it, 2020 happened. With the global pandemic and ensuing lockdowns, schools scrambled to get online lessons up and running. That meant a lot of sleepless nights for teachers, administrators, parents, and a lot of uncertainty for students. But this disaster certainly was a boon for any company providing online content, such as K-12. Well, they didn't as much deliver content as a traditional publisher because they were generally the emo of charter schools, but they had enough at their fingertips, and honestly, they were online, so this didn't stop them from bidding and getting a no-bid contract from Miami-Dade for $15 million in order to provide online education for all of the students. Thus was born K-12's, well, unfortunately soon-to-be short-lived, My School Online Project, one that involved, as online education projects do, 
a number of subcontractors, a lot of interaction with bureaucrats and other agencies, and a very, very tight deadline. Now, when the curtain went up in September, uh, the, the entire system became the stuff monkeys are known to toss at strangers at the zoo, and it landed with equal force with requisite disgust. With everyone already on edge, having to deal with their children and learning exactly what teachers go through all day, it took no time for, well, virtual crowds to bring their digital Frankenstein rakes and Minecraft torches, and after 13 hours and 400 public speakers, the Miami-Dade County School Board decided they had heard enough. According to Phil on EdTech, Phil Hill's educational blog, and now I guess I have to shout out his podcast, Phil on Ed Tech, which you can find on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. At 2 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, the board voted unanimously to stop using My School Online. Many said it was largely to blame for the school district's, quote, extraordinarily disastrous start of the school year. In 2020, CEO Davis was definitely earning his $9 million compensation package, because if he didn't have a headache with the pivot to creating platforms for Miami-Dade, he certainly had to have a few aspirins for the next problem that the company was going to face. So who doesn't want their child's social security numbers, special education records, assessment scores, or other personal details just floating around on the dark web, perhaps for sale, perhaps traded by pedophiles, perhaps by terrorists? Well, it turns out that no one wants that. However, it turns out that, quote, thousands of K-12 students were affected by 99 reported data breaches in the United States over the last four years, according to the Government Accountability Office, according to Politico. And if the year wouldn't end for us, the year would not end for K-12. And in the waning days of 2020, the lawyers seem to be ramping up and circling around, and this time with a class action suit. Uh, but this time it was not teachers who were paying out of pocket for the privilege to work for the company or local districts who didn't like the arrangement or the outcomes of the virtual schools or investors who were made sad by discovering exactly what the company did for money. But it was a range of investors who were made mad when K-12 earnings turned sour when, according to the complaint, quote, K-12 made false and misleading statements to the market, K-12 failed to build and maintain the necessary technology infrastructure and knowledge base necessary to support increased demand for distance learning caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. It may have been that COVID-19 finally kills K-12. Actually, as we learned at the top of the episode, K-12 is already dead, since they changed your name to Strive in November, and while many vestiges of K-12 are out there online, these will probably be phased out, because having screwed up so hard in the K-12 market, they are going to expand out of that into career and college readiness. I, I guess we're going to see what's next. And that's where we stand with K-12 for this episode. In our next episode, we're going to examine student stories, parent tales, glass door reviews, homeschool mommy blogs, and of course, a lot of data collected by various agencies and institutions that paint a picture of how K-12 had prepared the nation's youth for the 21st century. And now, time for one last announcement. It seems students at the International Baccalaureate Charter School in Imperial Beach, California, won't be having any field trips this year since it's alleged that the PTA president, one Caitlin Birchman, made off with between fourteen and $25,000, as has been the charge of 
and has been charged with writing a number of bad checks against an already closed PTA bank account. The crime has rocked the small charter school and led many parents to quit the organization, according to the school leadership. We're not sure what Birchman may have used the $25,000 for, but since homes in that district go for an average of $600,000, according to Zillow, we hope she went to Mexico and had a really great time rather than just buying dumb consumer goods and impulse buys around the community. The story in the Imperial Beach News, California, Imperial Beach's only online outlet for obituaries, a reader named Judith Three responded, quote, Well, uh, this is very sad news because... FBI director has served this nation in a very uh, efficient way, and uh, we have to confess, help me do my assignment, because we have seen it with our own eyes. Please do not arrest this man, for God's sake. Close quote. Which may mean that someone better check on Grandma. She's commenting on the wrong stories again and somehow inserted a link to an outfit that uses Australians to help students write their term papers. Well, thanks, Grandma, for the tip. But we write our own term papers at scandal.k12.us. As with other episodes, we'd like to thank our student body for listening and supporting us every step of the way. Please tell your friends to do the same. Maybe even tell some ex-lovers. Our podcast might be a great excuse to reconnect, and you never know where the night's going to go. If you have a story or a scandal or an idea or a complaint, or you just want to rant at us, you can get to us at scandalk12us at gmail.com. We'd like to thank our sources, and as always, we'll put the key readings on the website, www.scandalk12us.com. We'd also like to acknowledge the help from reading the Mercury Times for our cited stories, as well as the inv their investigative reporting. They produced many articles, some of which we didn't draw upon, but they're out there and you should read them. We use many articles from Edweek and NPR, as well as a graduate paper by Sydney, Emily, Jacelyn, and, I guess, Billy. As with every podcast that's out there, please support us by going to our Patreon page, do the usual likes in the usual places, get us on the usual platforms, such as Apple Podcasts or Apple Podcasts or, well, Apple Podcasts, because things are basically monopolies these days. Very soon we'll be adding merchandise in a section on the website called Little Useless Thing Club where you can pick up some really useless things and join the club. We want to shout out a few schools for our Patreon listeners such as Ditmas Regional High School, Antiora High School, and an institution that was is allegedly called School of Hard Knocks. We're not sure if that's accredited. Thanks to contributors to the Freesound Project at freesound.org Please go over there and give them a few bucks. The credits for the used noises, credits for the credits for sounds that we use will be listed on our website, scandalk12us.com. And of course, remember the saying, tell us and we forget, teach us and we remember, screw us over, and you're on scandal.k12.us. Class dismissed.